Let's open to John chapter 7. We're continuing our uh, study of the gospel of John, and I'm excited to tackle this next passage. will be kind of in verses 25 and later. So I'm going to invite Stephanie. She's going to come and do our scripture reading for us this morning, and then we'll pray and we'll spend some time unpacking these words. Go ahead, Steph. This is the reading of God's word from John 7, 25 through 36. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on himself, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Amen. Thank you. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for the firm foundation that is your word. God, I'm asking uh, for myself and for all of my brothers and sisters who are here today, whatever is going on in our lives, emotionally, spiritually, life's circumstances, work, family, finances, health. God, I'm asking that you and your grace would just carve out a place for us right now to hear your truth, to receive your grace, to be shaped and and grown and matured and healed and loved by you in your word. God, for myself, I pray that you would guard my lips and help me only teach that which is in line with your truth that you've given to us. And may our focus and attention go on Jesus now in whose name we pray. Amen. I want to start in a little bit of an unusual place, but I'll explain why in a minute. So the mission statement of Sound City Bible Church, when we launched a little over three years ago, we we spent time as as the the founding elder team just talking and wrestling and praying through what we want our mission statement to be. And and, and I think this statement is valuable for a number of reasons, but, but let me just read it to you. It says, our mission is first and foremost to glorify God. We could have just stopped there. Because people who are much smarter than me or any of the founding elders, you know, they, they dug through the scriptures. And they said, hey, what's the, what's the chief end of man? What is the whole purpose of mankind? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That we were created to present the goodness of God by bearing his image and likeness. That was what we were created to do. So our mission is to glorify God, but we, we can't do that because we're sinful and fallen. So what do we got to do? We got we to gotta proclaim Jesus. Shame on us if a Sunday ever goes by and you do not hear the name of Jesus Christ lifted up and proclaimed. He is our Savior. He is our hope. He is what this whole gathering is about. If it's not about Jesus, 
you honestly should go home and you should watch the golf channel, okay? Because the nap that would inevitably follow would be a much better use of your time than this. But no, Jesus is alive. He's our savior. He's our redeemer. Then we say, well, we want to glorify God by receiving his grace. Because guess what? It's not all about what we can do. You put yourself in the position of a recipient of God's grace. Even our mission isn't all about what we're going to do. And then this last little couplet, which is two phrases or one, I kind of like to think of it as one phrase in two parts, being disciples and making disciples. I think of it as one thing because to be a disciple is to be making disciples. That's what discipling is. You, you follow Jesus and you invite others to follow. You learn from him and you learn from others and you share what you've learned and how you've grown with others. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means to make a disciple. And I was thinking of the mission statement because I was out of town this last week and I was at another church in uh, Florida. And by the way, Florida is interesting. Have you guys heard of the 80-20 rule? I came up with a new 80-20 rule while I was in Florida this week. There's no middle ground. They have 80-year-olds that drive 20 miles an hour and 20-year-olds that drive 80 miles an hour and nothing in between. That was my experience of Florida this last week. But I'm at this other church in Florida and there for class and for school. And I'm, I always like to look through church's mission statements. And I like to get their pamphlets and look at the things they have written on the walls. And, and their mission statement had something about, you know, being disciples and growing as disciples. And I was thinking about other churches I visited. I, I preached at another church uh, in February. I preached at some other churches in December. And I was like, oh yeah, they all talk about making disciples. And I was at a conference maybe a month ago and all these other churches were there and they all brought this. And all this stuff talked about making disciples. You guys, discipleship is a big deal. Following Jesus, being a disciple is a big deal. And it's actually pretty obvious because when Jesus ascended back to heaven, to the, to the right hand of his father, the last words he said to his disciples were, you know, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore you go. He didn't say go. He actually said going as you go. It's a participle and I'm serious. It's in the Greek, but it means like when you live your life as you go, make disciples of all people, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the father, son, and the spirit, the one name of the father, son, and the spirit, and then teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So the last words that Jesus said, and surely I'll be with you to the end of the age, but involve, hey, go make disciples. Throughout the gospel of John, we've seen people call Jesus rabbi. You guys remember what rabbi means? Teacher, exactly. And throughout the gospel of John, we see these people called disciples, which just simply means a follower, one who follows in the way of their master, one who follows in the way of their rabbi, one who follows in the way of their teacher. In fact, you remember back in John chapter one, we saw the, the, these, these first disciples, they were hanging around John the baptizer. And then John was like, hey, that's, that's Jesus. That's the lamb of God. He's the one that takes away the sins of the world. So they started following him and they're like, hey, you know, rabbi, which means teacher. Good job. You guys passed the quiz. Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said, come come and you'll see. Come and follow me. Let's go. And you actually remember those first disciples went and grabbed some other disciples and said, hey, you, you come follow too. You guys remember that? And then we get to this passage in John chapter seven and Jesus says something that if you're paying attention, ought to kind of give you one of those like record needle scratching across the vinyl sounds. Wait a minute. They're, they're following Jesus. They're going. And then Jesus says, I'm going to be with you a little while longer. And then I'm going to go to him who sent me you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. 
Now, maybe it's just me, but does anybody else go, well, wait a minute, Jesus. I thought you said to follow you. I thought you said to seek you. I thought you said to, you know, run hard after you. And what do you mean by this? You can't go where I'm coming. And now I'm just frustrated. What do we do with this? Here's, here's what I hope to get across to us today. This, this verse in John 7 serves as an interpretive key for this whole passage. And I would even take it one step farther and say it serves as an interpretive key for the entire Bible. And what I want you to get to, to, to understand today is this, that Jesus, yes, he is a good example for us to follow, but he is more than just a good example for us to follow. He has to be our redeemer. And I would go so far as to say that Jesus, the example without Jesus, the redeemer, is no example at all. It's a weighty, burdensome thing to try to follow Jesus if you don't know him first and foremost as redeemer. So we're going to go through this passage and I'm going to try to, I want to kind of demonstrate for you a little bit like, okay, here's example Jesus and then here's redeemer Jesus. And if you want to think of example Jesus, he's wearing a what would Jesus do bracelet, okay? And the emphasis is all on our part. Now, hear me loud and clear on this. I am not saying that it is a bad thing to have Jesus as an example. We are called to follow him. We are called to learn from him. We are called to grow in our thoughts and our words and our actions and our motives to be more like Jesus. Amen? But I want to help you have fuel for the fire that will actually sustain you. So that's what we're going to see today. All right. Picking up in verse 25, you remember that Jesus is in Jerusalem now for the Feast of Booths, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, one of the, the biblical Jewish feasts. He's there. It's not time for him to die yet, but he's there and he's teaching and there's been all this misunderstanding. That's a big theme in John, right? I mean, people misunderstanding Jesus. And so this misunderstanding continues on and we're gonna look as we read these verses we're going to look at where the Messiah is from, what the Messiah is doing, where the Messiah is going. And we're going to look at how we could read these passages, maybe in, in these two different lights. So verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Isn't this Jesus? They're, they're pretty angry at him. He, he healed that guy. He claimed to be equal with God, the father. I thought the authorities wanted to kill him. And yet here he is just speaking openly and they're not even they're not even saying anything to him. Hey, do you, do you think maybe it's because they know that he actually is the Messiah? Maybe, maybe the authorities know that and they're not killing him because they think he's a Christ. But wait a minute. No, 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 no. Hold on a second. We know where this man comes from. Nazareth. Podunk, no account, Hicksville, Northern Galilee, Nazareth. We know where this guy comes from. And, and we also know that when the Christ appears, Nobody's going to know where he comes from. There's this tradition based on, on certain verses in the Old Testament prophets that the Messiah, when he appears, it's going to be a very secretive, apocalyptic revelation. And, and you know, verses like when, when the, the Lord comes to his temple, he'll appear suddenly. 
And so kind of specifically in certain mystic traditions, they just believed no one would know where the Messiah comes from. It'll be like a secret unveiling. You know, we finally take Batman's mask off and see that it was Bruce Wayne the whole time. That's not what they were thinking. That's what I'm thinking. But that's, that's kind of the idea of this, this secret Messiah. And they're like, but we, he can't be the Messiah because we know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me. And you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So Jesus is saying, yeah, you know, I'm from Nazareth, but you don't really know where I'm from. I come from God. I come from heaven. I come not only from heaven, but with the authority of heaven to speak truth on behalf of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. Yeah, you think you know me. You don't really know me. Now, pause. Okay, zoom out. You're reading your Bible. You're doing your devotionals. 6.15, you got your coffee going. You've already Instagrammed it. Things are going good, right? What are you supposed to take away from this passage? What are you supposed to draw from it? Now, if you go to example Jesus, you might walk away with something kind of like this. You might say, you know, it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter if you're from a small town. God can use you to do great things for his kingdom. Now, is that untrue? No, it's perfectly acceptable. That's totally true. You could be from Mill Creek and God can still use you, right? Like, that's amazing. It's amazing. You can't even get out of 164th, but God could use you for his kingdom, right? The people from Mill Creek are like, I feel you, brother, right? That's a very regionally specific joke. And uh, (laughs) there's nothing wrong with that, but the problem is there's something missing. There's something missing. There's a bigger point. There's something else that Jesus is trying to say. It's, it's something like this. It's something like the Messiah left the glory and the treasure and the riches of heaven to come live a life of poverty and obscurity so that he could share the riches of God's kingdom with us. Now you tell me, one of those things has us at the center of the story and one of those things has Jesus at the center of the story. Which one of those things is going to wear you out faster? And which one of those is going to sustain you to be able to actually follow Jesus? You guys see how I'm doing this? I I hope this isn't overly pedagogical or or like a lesson, but I, I really am hoping to teach you how to read your Bibles. How to read the Bible and understand it for its Christ central focus. It's not that the example Jesus thing is bad or wrong. It's just, we got to start with Jesus as redeemer. Verse 30. I love this. This, oh, I love this verse. They were seeking to, I say that a lot, but I really do. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him and they said, When the Christ appears, he couldn't possibly do more miracles and signs than what this guy's already done, right? This guy has to be the Messiah. Look at all these miracles he's doing. And the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, still muttering. 
And so the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Okay, <laughs> I love this. Just pause for a moment and think about the profound truth that was just said here in verse 30. They were seeking to arrest him, but they didn't. Why? Because the guy forgot his handcuffs at home, right? No, they were seeking to arrest him, but they couldn't. Why? Well, because they didn't get the proper warrant, you know, from the right courts from Herod. And now that's the, it was late and it was, you know, the shift was changing over and the, no, why could they not arrest him? Because God said it wasn't time yet. J.C. Ryle, Puritan preacher, author says, there is a mine of deep truth in these words before us, which deserves close attention. They show us plainly that all our Lord's sufferings were undergone voluntarily and of his own free will. He did not go to the cross because he couldn't help it. He did not die because he could not prevent his death. Neither Jew nor Gentile, Pharisee nor Sadducee, Annas nor Caiaphas, Herod nor Pontius Pilate could have injured our Lord except power had been given them from above. All that they did was under control and by permission. The crucifixion was part of the eternal counsels of the Trinity. The sufferings and death of our Lord could not begin until the very hour which God had appointed. This is a great mystery, but it is a truth. Does it comfort any of you to know that even in the timing of his betrayal and arrest and crucifixion, God's still working things out. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. No, the, the lamb is going to be slain during Passover. It's going to happen in the spring. So again, these people, they're looking at all these signs that, that Jesus was doing. They're saying, he, he's got to be the Messiah. Look at all these signs that he's doing. Look at all these miracles that he's doing. So again, let's zoom out. Example Jesus. When I think of the signs that Jesus did, I think of where Jesus said, greater signs than these will you do. And so I think that, okay, Jesus did great, incredible signs then we're going to do great, incredible signs. And just like Jesus got resistance and pushback and persecution, we should expect resistance and pushback and persecution. Again, is that wrong? Is that false? No. But again, we're missing something. Because Jesus didn't just do signs to show us the kind of things that we're supposed to do. Jesus, our Redeemer, performed signs to show that he was the Son of God and to show us what his kingdom is going to look like. Jesus healed the paralyzed man because in God's eternal kingdom, there will be no more paralysis. Jesus did the, the, the sign of feeding the 5,000 because in his kingdom, no one will go hungry, but we will feast with our Savior forever. Now, it's not untrue that he said, you're going to do greater signs. You're going to go do incredible things in my name. But we must first have Jesus as the redeemer if you even want to hope or to try or to even make an attempt at following his example. Last one. Then Jesus said, I'll be with you a little longer. Then I am going to him who sent me. Who's that? God of, yes, very good. Jesus then, I just want to make sure you're tracking with me. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you, you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. That just doesn't sound like anything that Jesus has said up to this point, does it? No, follow me, come. No, you, you can't come. 
And then the Jews said to each other, I love this misunderstanding. Where does this guy think he's going to go that we can't find him? Is he going to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and not find me and where I am you'll not come? See, the, the Jewish people had been scattered throughout the whole Greek-speaking world at this point in history. There had been exiles, Assyria came in, Babylon came in, Persia conquered all, you know, Alexander the Great conquered the whole known world. And, and really the Jewish people, yes, some had moved back to Israel, but they were spread all over the known world. And so they're like, what's this guy going to like go on the road? He's going to take his message out to like the Greeks and, and the, the Greek speaking Jews. Is that what he's going to do? Where does he think he's going to go? Is that what Jesus is talking about? He's going to go to Turkey going to go to Rome. He's going to, no, that's not what he's talking about. Where is it that he's going to go? Where is it that only he can go? Only Christ can go to the cross to pay a debt that mankind owes. See, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Mankind owes the debt, but we as fallen Sinful human beings cannot pay the debt that we owe, but a perfect man could. And only a holy and perfect person could do that. And only God is holy and perfect. So Jesus is fully God to satisfy the righteousness, the the required righteousness that God deserves. Only Jesus could go into the grave for three days And only Jesus could rise. He says that I I lay my life down and I pick it back up again when I so choose. Only Jesus could then ascend to the right hand of the father where he ever lives and pleads for us day in and day out, interceding on our behalf. And oh yeah, by the way, upholding the universe by the word of his power while doing it. That's our Jesus. That's the only place he could go. See, the example, again, to read this as Jesus is the example, it's, it's maybe it's something like this, you know. God has a unique calling on your life. Something that only you can do. Only you can fulfill. Only you were wired for it. Again, that's not wrong. That's not false. It's just incomplete. It's just out of order. You are uniquely gifted and wired by God. You do have a special place to play in his kingdom. You are a part of the body, an integral part of the body. And even if you feel like a pinky toe, you're very valuable. Because have you ever stubbed your pinky toe? That's all you can think about when you don't have its proper functioning use, right? We need you. Whether you're a liver or an eyeball or a whatever you might be in the body of Christ, you are needed and valuable and uniquely gifted and called and wired by God. But there is Jesus... The Redeemer first, because he is the only one who could face the wrath of God, who could take the penalty that we deserve and could rise again and ascend to the right hand of the Father. That's Jesus. That's our Redeemer. Only he could do that. Only he could do that. Now listen, here's the deal. Here's the deal. If we get these things out of order, some bad things will happen. Can I have my water? Thank you. That's my wife. She's doubling as a water person. You get, I don't know if you can tell, I'm losing my voice and I'm going to give it my all for the next few minutes until I'm done. And if I lose my voice, I pre-recorded this sermon on my iPhone and we'll just play it on the screen. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't really do it. I did not really do that. If we get the, can I use the phrase order of operations? Are any of you in math class right now and that just stresses you out, right? Again, it's not that the example Jesus is bad, but if we put it 
out of order, some things will happen. First of all, if we, if we, if we put example Jesus before and greater than redeemer Jesus, it leads to either pride or despair. Okay? <laughs> despair, because you're going to try to follow Jesus and you're going to find out in short order that you're not very good at it. Oh, it's weight on me. I, I try, right? I, man, that breaks my heart. Sometimes I'll ask people like, well, are you a Christian? And they say, I try. I'm like, ah, oh, it's heartbreaking. Or maybe even more heartbreaking. Well, I'm going to try to follow Jesus. I'm going to do it. And then you do a good job and you start to look down on others and pride wells up in your heart because you do a good job and you think that you did that yourself. Pride or despair is is what happens when you put example Jesus before redeemer Jesus. Lack of assurance. I tried to follow Jesus. I tried to do my best, but I kept sinning. I kept falling short. And now I don't even know if I really actually am a Christian because I thought that to be a Christian was to follow the example of Jesus and I'm not following his example particularly well. Maybe I'm not actually even a Christian. Maybe I'm not really even saved. If you put Jesus the example up and above Jesus the Redeemer, you could find yourself rallied to causes instead of to Christ. We're all uniquely gifted, wired, called. There are things that we're passionate about. Some of you are passionate about ministry to homeless people. Some of you are passionate about foster care. Some of you are passionate about uh, ministry to, you know, the business community. Whatever you might be passionate about. But these, these causes, when they're divorced from Christ, they ultimately will leave us empty. They'll, they'll, they'll leave us with a feeling of satisfaction like we did something good. But if it's not ultimately grounded in Christ, it's not lasting of eternal value because it's just all about following Jesus the example I mean he did some things right Jesus fed hungry people Jesus ministered to the to the woman at the well scandalized broken outcast Jesus stood up to the man I love standing up to the man right Arthur we start a punk band can we stand up to the man let's do it all right I take your laughter as a yes okay so right if we don't have Christ at the center, those are just causes. They come and go. Here today, gone tomorrow. New problem. New cause. If we put example Jesus over and above Redeemer Jesus, man, do we miss out on transcendence. People are, people are dying to experience the transcendent. One of the things... I'm really grateful that we live in the era and the time that we do. Uh, science and medical technology and all this stuff is just phenomenal. Like just the, the fact that you can have medicines that, that help us and we can have science and understand. Like it's a beautiful and a good, and I would even say a God-ordained thing, but one of the downsides of it is, man, we are starved for transcendence. We feel like in our pride and our arrogance, our, our scientific arrogance, we feel like we could just rationalize and explain everything in the universe just with chemicals and molecules. And then all of a sudden something like string theory comes up and everyone loses their minds because they don't know how to explain it. We're dying for a transcendent experience. We're dying for something to pull us out of, of just the day-to-day mundane lives that we live. Can we just be honest? Like none of our lives are that glamorous, Right? 
We want those moments of transcendent experience. If we put Christ the example, it's just, we just lower him down to our level. He's just the best example we've got to do to follow. And we're just going to follow him and you know, one foot in front of the other, nose down, go. And lastly, we miss out on grace. If it's just Christ the example, well, you fail, you mess up. All right, well, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, try again. God is a God of second chances. So just try again. Better luck next time. If we remember that Christ is our redeemer before he's our example, redeemer first, then example. But that'll that'll give us some motivation to follow. Think of in Romans 12 where it says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, Offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. When Paul says, therefore, in light of God's mercy, what is he referring to? The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Hey, I just went on and on and on about your unworthiness and God's grace and how all have sinned, but Christ died and he loves you and he chose you and he wants you and he desires you and his blood is perfect and his, there's nothing that can separate you, neither height nor depth or angel or demon or nothing at all of you know, creation could separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Hey, now, in light of all that, let me share with you some things to live a life in response to that. Do you think that'll motivate you? That's a little bit different than, hey, just try it. Better luck next time. Try again. Think about what Christ has done for us. If Christ is redeemer and then example, we have motivation to follow and we have a freedom to take some risks. Instead of sitting around worrying about every little thing that we could possibly do and I don't want to do this or do that because what if I make the wrong choice? Sometimes as a pastor, I counsel with people and they, they, they say things, they would never say it this way, but they, the way that they're approaching decisions in life is almost like they're trying to figure out which choice to make because they're pretty sure that God might be trying to trick them. Now, they never say it that way, but it's like, well, should I do this? Or should I take this job? Or should I do this? Like, God's not trying to trick you. He's on your side. Psalm 27.1 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of what should I be afraid? I've got no fear. I might, I might make a wrong step. I might mess up. But you know what the book of Proverbs says? That a man plans out his, his, his path, but the Lord orders his steps anyways. So even if I do make the wrong step, God's going to use it for his glory and for my good. You get some freedom in there, folks. If Christ is redeemer first, well, then you have Christ-grounded causes. Causes that will actually lead to an eternal benefit. Does anybody else get frustrated when people misquote the Bible? I do. So I looked up the verse. Mark 9.41 says this. Whoever gives you a cup of cold, a cup of water to drink, and I almost just did, a cup of water, doesn't matter, warm, cold, to drink, here it is, in my name, because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. Dear Christian, Christ wants you to serve 
the poor in his name because you belong to him. Do you see this? Again, example, Jesus just says, go give water to people. Go do it. I gave water to people. You go give water to people. Redeemer Jesus says, you belong to me. No one can snatch you out of my hand. I gave my life for you. Go tell people about that in my name and use a cup of water or a sandwich. Christ in sandwich form, right? Serious. If we remember that Christ is our redeemer first, we're drawn into the transcendent. Ephesians 2.6 says, God raised us up with him and seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay, just pause for a moment. You are seated in Linwood High School right now. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Man, this gets me so fired up. I really am tempted to walk up and down the aisles. I'm not going to do it. But like you don't understand how incredible this truth is. Again, our lives might look boring. Our lives might look mundane. But if Christ is your redeemer, then you've been seated at the table of heaven. When you go to Trader Joe's this week and you're pushing that stupid cart with a wheel that doesn't work and you're putting your frozen chicken and your fresh organic whatevers into the cart and you're sitting there like, this is so dumb and this is so boring. Just remember, you're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Your life, you're already constantly, daily, moment by moment, drawn into the transcendence of God himself. If Christ is just an example, well, he's just down on our level, someone to follow. I don't need any more good examples to follow. I can't do it. I've tried. I'm really high energy. I try a lot of them at a really fast rate. And I've tried a lot and they all, it always fails. I need Christ, the redeemer, to draw me into the transcendent, to remind me that even though I might be doing something as mundane as doing the dishes. I am loving and serving my wife and I'm loving and serving my family, which has spiritual value. And it can be done as worship unto God. And then lastly, if Christ is our redeemer before he's our example, guess what? There is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. James 4, 6, it just says, but he gives more grace. Well, how much more? More. Though our sins are many, his grace is greater still. I remember a time in my life, this might be six years ago or so, where I just, I, I face planted. Anybody in your spiritual life, you ever just had a spiritual face plant? You ever just wipe out, like the spiritual equivalent of just gravel in your skin, Right? And I was sitting with a group of men, a group of pastors, and I was really upset. Because I knew that my sin had ramifications. I hurt people. I let people down. And one of the pastors kind of grabbed me. Don't worry, it's good. And he kind of grabbed me by the shirt, by the shoulders. He said, bro, how pastors talk to each other. Bro, he goes, I know you're feeling really low right now. 
there is so much grace to be milked out of this season right now. Don't miss a drop of it. And I started to cry. Because in my lowest moment, in my lowest failure, my, my natural proclivity, even as a you know, grace-based, gospel-founded pastor, my natural proclivity was, what do I have to do to dig myself out of this pit that I've dug for myself? And he just grabbed me and he said, grace! I was like, thank you! Because I needed that. And I see that sometimes as, as a pastor. I see that sometimes when I'm talking with people and ministering to people and I've used those, even those same words to other people. Like there's grace for you in this moment. You feel so low right now. You feel like a big fool and a failure and a fraud. And Christ comes and says, grace. When Jesus died on the cross, he knew that that was going to be part of your story. You you might've surprised yourself. You didn't surprise him. Man, that's it. That's the end of the sermon. <laughs> I, I want, listen. I, no, it's not. I lied. One more thing. <laughs> I want you to follow Jesus. I do. I really do. But I want you to have genuine gas in the tank. I want you to have genuine fuel in the fire. If all we do is walk out of here and say, okay, this is it. This week, I'm going to follow Jesus the example all those things I said a moment ago. But if we go out of here, we say, Jesus went to a place that I couldn't go. Where we could not go to bridge the gap between heaven and earth to bring God's reconciling love into our hearts. That'll change some things. That'll change some things. Father, I pray that you'd help us today to grasp the significance of what this means. God, I ask and I pray that you administer your grace to us right now. Jesus, we want to follow you as an example. We do. We genuinely do. But we confess right now that our ability to follow you as example is only possible if we first know you as Redeemer. Daily, hour by hour, moment by moment. Jesus, as we come before you now, in worship and in response, I ask and I pray that you would enable our worship and our response to be fueled by your grace. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. We're going to respond in a few ways. We're going to sing. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. First, we're going to give of our tithes and offerings. So I just encourage you, if you're a guest or a visitor with us, we don't like to do arm twisting, but we do like to invite everyone to consider the grace of God and to respond as the scriptures would say, to give what you've decided in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And so we give as a response to what God has done for us in his grace. You can give online, you can text to give, you can give here as the, the buckets are being passed. But I just encourage you, whatever you give, however you give, to do it as worship. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11 because we're going to celebrate the Lord's table here. The Lord's table, what a, what a beautiful representation of Christ the Redeemer. It says in verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for 
you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after cup supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, today as we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, you, you can think of it this way. Just as the, the, the bread and the juice go into your body, so Christ himself enters into us and empowers us and enlivens us to make it even possible for us to follow him and to worship him. There's an invitation also to reflect. It says, uh, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself first. Then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we're going to hold, the musicians will play instrumentally. We're going to invite our younger students class to come in and join us for this time of worship and response. And I want to invite you to take your heart before the Lord. Say, God, I've been trying to follow Jesus, the example, but I've been doing it from the wrong motivation. I need more of your grace today. And then when you're ready, eat and drink and stand to your feet and sing with us. Let me pray again. Father, I, I give this time to you. We take these elements, this, this bread and this, this cup, and we remember, Christ, that you are our redeemer. Your body was broken for us. Your blood was spilled for us that we might come to know you. And that Jesus, it is only by your grace that we are able to follow you. I ask and I pray that you would meet with us here in this time, here in this moment. Let us come to you now and receive and drink deeply of your grace. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.